So my paper today um, is about a personal and textual rivalry, um, a rivalry that centred on a particular day, um, the 6th of June 1944, which was D-Day. Um, and it was also about ambition uh, in print. Uh, it was about authority and credibility and what could and couldn't be written about the roles of men and women in war. Um, it was a rivalry between two people who were both great writers and great journalists um, and who happened to be married to each other, um, Ernest Hemingway and Martha Galhorn. So here they are on the slide. Um, and I've chosen these photos to show you um, because they encapsulate, if you like, what's in competition, both personally and um, textually, um, the war hero. So Hemingway there is on crutches um, because he's um, sustained a wound in the First World War um, in Italy. Um, so the wounded war hero um, and, and the physically striking woman, Martha Galhorn's pictured there um, in... Um, Cuba, La Finca Vigia, the house that they shared just outside Havana. So I'm going to start with a bit of biographical detail about the pair. You probably don't need that for Hemingway, but Galhorn's not quite as well known. So Galhorn born, um, was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1908, um, and she was an aspiring fiction writer and journalist when she and Hemingway met in uh, 1936 in Sloppy Joe's in um, Key West, very famously. Um, and their relationship flourished in Spain um, as they covered the Civil War there. Um, Galhorn writing for Collier's magazine, which was an, uh, an American liberal weekly, um, and Hemingway for the North American Newspaper Alliance. Um, they got married in 1941, but the best of their times was really behind them by then, and they were to separate um, in 1945. <coughs> So let's home in on 1944. Um, Gellhorn has been reporting on the Second World War from England and Holland for Collier's magazine. And Hemingway's contribution um, to the war effort to date has been to hunt for Nazi submarines off the coast of Cuba um, in his modified fishing boat, the Pilar. Um, not surprisingly, um, he didn't find any. Um, no one, least of all Galhorn, can understand why Hemingway, the great war writer, the author of Farewell to Arms and For Whom the Bell Tolls, isn't covering the war back in Europe. So Galhorn comes back across the Atlantic to the marital home outside Havana to try to persuade her husband to go to Europe. And the result is, Galhorn later tells um, their biographer Bernice Kurt, that, quote, Ernest begins at once to rave at me, the word is not too strong, my crime really is to have been at war when he has not, but that is not how he puts it. I am supposedly insane, I only want excitement and danger, I have no responsibility to anyone, I am selfish beyond belief. So that strength of feeling um, is worth noting. Um, to both of them, being at war was crucial. Um, and not only to their senses of their own selves, but to how they functioned as writers. In fact, Gellhorn has got Hemingway a deal. Um, the assistant British air attaché, and in one of life's extraordinary coincidences, this happens to be Roald Dahl of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory fame. Um, so Roald Dahl um, has let it be known that Hemingway will be allocated a seat on a plane across the Atlantic if he'll write about the RAF. Um, in any American publication. 
So guess which publication Hemingway chooses? Uh, it's Collier's magazine, the very magazine that Gellhorn is reporting on the war for. Now this choice is still very bitterly raked over by Hemingway and Gellhorn scholars, um, who often fight, by the way, as ferociously as these two do themselves. Um, if you take Gellhorn's side, um, you point out that each American newspaper or magazine could only have one accredited correspondent to cover the European theatre. Um, so by choosing Collier's, um, Hemingway did her out of a job. If you take Hemingway's side, you point out that the US War Department had ruled that female correspondents could go no further forward than the women's services could go. So if it wanted front-line coverage, um, Collier's needed a man. Um, but whichever side you come down on, um, Hel- uh, Galhorn's sense of injustice um, at Hemingway's choice remained um, for the rest of her life. Now, in their dispatches for Collier's magazine, which I'm going to get on to, um, Hemingway and Galhorn were both concerned to create a correspondent persona, a self. Um, and they were assisted in this um, by the magazine's editorial interventions, which I'm going to talk about. And the tropes of presence at and proximity to combat um, were crucial to these personae. Um, But in Hemingway's case, I think they were vital not only to establish credibility and authority as a war correspondent, um, but because they were essential components um, uh, of what may be called his greatest work of fiction, um, that is Hemingway himself. Um, that imposing edifice of traditionally masculine autobiographies that he'd painstakingly been constructing and living out um, for decades. So we can call this, if you like, the hyperreal Hemingway. Um, the hyperreal Hemingway uh, was and is a simulated concentration of the actuality, more Hemingway-esque uh, than the man himself. And so this is the Hemingway of the lookalike competitions, which is still ongoing to this day, um, of the Hemingway-themed safaris and shoots, which you can still go on, of the Hemingway-themed hotels, um, of the bars from Paris uh, to Pamplona to Key West to Havana, with signs saying, Ernest Hemingway drank here. And very occasionally you get an enterprising bar that has a sign, uh, Ernest Hemingway never drank here, just to be different. <laughs> and of perpetuating fiction such as Michael Palin's um, novel Hemingway's Chair. So perhaps the most important of these autobiographies or building blocks of the self, the combatant persona, was actual fighting experience. And Hemingway considered himself a fighter. And the great battle um, of these times was set up to be D-Day. So um, in a letter to his middle son Patrick... Um, on the 15th of September 1944, so after D-Day, Hemingway wrote, Dearest Mousy, so they all gave each other these extraordinary nicknames. So Mousy was Patrick, his um, second son. Dearest Mousy, it has been about two months since Papa came back to France after landing on D-Day on Omaha Beach. Now, the use of the third person there might seem a bit odd, but it's typical um, of Hemingway, um, but the gist is clear enough. Hemingway's brother, Lester Hemingway, writing 20 years later, um, added further detail. um, And Lester said um, that Ernest went ashore under heavy fire in a 36-foot landing craft through anti-tank obstacles on Fox Green Beach and recalled him saying afterward, once we waded ashore, they began doing their stuff. I said, let's get up the beach to where we can shoot back. And I kicked him squarely in the butt as I got going forward. 
he followed with his men and we moved further in. And Martha Galhorn herself reported in an acerbic V-mail to her mother shortly after D-Day uh, the following. Berg, this is another of their nicknames, have done a very fine long story. He was over in the first wave on D-Day in naturally the most perilous circumstances. So that all seems quite clear, doesn't it? Um, Hemingway landed on D-Day and seems to have taken some part in um, the actual fighting. So what were Galhorn's fortunes on D-Day? Well, she recalls of her own experiences. This was later in her um, collection of biographical, autobiographical writings, The Face of War. The US Army public relations officers, the bosses of the American press, were a doctrinaire bunch who objected to a woman being a combatant, sorry, <coughs> a correspondent with combat troops. I felt like a veteran of the Crimean War by then, and I had been sent to Europe to do my job, which was not to report the rear, are rear areas or the woman's angle. The PROs in London became definitely hostile when I stowed away on a hospital ship in order to see something of the invasion of Normandy. After that, I could only report the war on secondary fronts in the company of admirable foreigners who were not fussy about official travel orders and accreditation. So Galhorn spent the morning of June the 6th, the morning of D-Day, in a great guarded room in the Ministry of Information in London, and when she was released, um, she immediately set off uh, to the south coast. And in a D-Day 50th anniversary piece, she recounted, A military policeman stopped me and asked me my business. I said I was just going to interview the nurses, the women's angle for Collier's, the American magazine I was working for. Nobody gave a hoot about the women's angle. It served like a perfect forged passport. As soon as I got aboard, I found a toilet and locked myself in. So, according to this piece and her other piece, Galhorn stowed away in a hospital ship, locked in a toilet, um, crossed the channel on the night of the 7th to 8th of June, and on the morning of the 8th of June, which is D-Day plus two, um, she went ashore to help stretch the wounded into the hospital ship. Uh, in a contemporary report, she described wading ashore in water to our wastes to recover injured soldiers. And in her 50th anniversary piece, she wrote we waded the last strip of water onto a beach of big sliding pebbles. So there we have Galhorn too, on the beach, not on D-Day itself, but two days later, and helping the medical corps rather than in the fighting role attributed to Ernest Hemingway. So let's now take a look at how all this played out in the pages of Collier's magazine. So in the magazine's issue for the uh, 20th of July, uh, sorry, the 22nd of July 1944, Hemingway and Galhorn effectively went to textual war. And the magazine's archives reveal that an unknown hand scrawled across Hemingway's cable, lead all Hemingway. So the front cover, and I'm sorry the resolution's not brilliant, but the front cover uh, sets the tone. Um, you can see down the, uh, the left-hand side, Voyage to Victory by Ernest Hemingway. Inside... Uh, is a, in a column headed This Week Articles. Um, the leading item is Ernest Hemingway, Voyage to Victory, Collier's Correspondent, Rides in the War Ferry to France. Um, and then second in the list um, is an article called The Great Zadma, How to Swallow a Sword. Um, and then after that, and only after that, is Martha Gellhorn, Over and Back, <coughs> The Invasion Has Become a Commuter's War. 
So you can see that already by the contents page, a certain prioritisation is in play. So Hemingway's dispatch occupies a big five-page spread of the edition. Um, Galhorn's is on a single page. And the first page of Hemingway's piece carries a large photograph of him, bearded, uniformed, surrounded by celebrity-struck young troops, very much the wise veteran um, Papa Incarnate. And it's captioned, uh, Ernest Hemingway, who gained his first fame as a war reporter in 1918, chats with GIs before leaving to cover biggest action yet. And this gives the impression um, that it's the reporter who's off to face the greatest danger. And you get that impression, it makes me love this photo because it's so much about him and the people who are actually going to be doing the fighting are are sort of looking up at him in um, adoration. So the next pages um, carry photographs of D-Day by the Colliers uh, photographer Joe Deering. Um, And here we can see troops um, standing beside a gun looking ahead um, to what's coming next. And the caption here reads... The beach had been defended as stubbornly and intelligently as any troops could defend it, and we had taken the beach. So together, image and caption create an invasion narrative and establish a veteran's perspective. Hemingway acquires this perspective by association, and the whole presentation of the article works to position him as a member of the invading force. Now, this presentation, of course, was the work of the Collier's editors, who can be forgiven uh, their enthusiasm um, for the big-name author of For Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, But it's important to note that within the article itself, um, the same message is given. So this is how Hemingway opens his piece. No one remembers the date of the Battle of Shiloh, but the day we took Fox Green Beach was the 6th of June, and the wind was blowing hard out of the northwest. It's very, very tempting to to attempt an accent, a Hemingway accent, but I'll spare you that. Um, Now, we, of course, uh, the day we took Fox Green Beach, could legitimately refer to our troops or we Americans. But Hemingway repeatedly refers to details that situate him as a member of the fighting forces, and specifically one of the crew of a boat heading in to land on Fox Green Beach. So the young lieutenant leading the crew relies on him looking through the field glasses and consults him on their location. Hemingway has not only learned all the landmarks on the Fox Green and Easy Red beaches, but even discussed the defensibility of the coastline with the commander. When the occupants of a patrol boat shout, good luck to all you fellows, through a megaphone, Hemingway notes that the fellows include the five other crew members, quote, and me. The sentence, quote, when we heard the lugubrious tone of that parting benediction, we all knew how bad the beach really was, seals his place not only as a member of the crew, but as part of the invasion force. And this is reinforced at the very end of the slide. Sorry, the very end of the article. Um, Real war is never like paper war, nor do accounts of it read much the way it looks. But if you want to know how it was in an LCVP on D-Day when we took... Fox Green Beach, and Easy Red Beach on the 6th of June, 1944, then this is as near as I can come to it. And then this is followed by an extraordinary set of boxed italics um, added by um, the Collier's editors. While Mr Hemingway was cabling this division, sorry, was cabling this article, General Montgomery revealed in an interview that a German division was sent up to thicken the coastal defences at the spot where Collier's correspondent landed. We hit it right on the nose, Mr Hemingway cabled. So note that unequivocal statement, Collier's correspondent landed. 
And the effect of this extra late information is to render the famed correspondence exploits all the more heroic. In fact, the casual reader may gain the impression that the German division um, was sent solely to take on Ernest <laughs> <by this> Taylor. <coughs> so now let's have a look at how Colliers presented Martha Gellhorn's report. It's on page 16 of the issue. It has the title Over and Back, and it also has a photograph. Uh, this photo is uh, credited to the US Signal Corps. In other words, it's an official pooled image deemed by editorial choice uh, to be appropriate. It shows a wounded GI, uh, knees buckling, being supported by two other soldiers um, who will be members of an auxiliary uh, medical corps. Um, and the caption reads, Back from the hell of Normandy beaches, this American paratroop officer is helped ashore by members of a medical corps unit en route to hospital and home. And the headline to the article says, Already the invasion has become a commuter's war as fighters shuttle between England's ports and Normandy's beaches. There's no photograph of Martha Galhorn. Um, the difference between the messages of the two articles could not, therefore, be more striking. So over and back um, reads like old news. Um, it was the third of three D-Day pieces Galhorn uh, sent to Colliers, radioed on the 14th of June, um, but it was the first to actually appear in the magazine. Um, it was already six days since her first Channel Crossing when she wrote in it, the invasion is still fairly new, but it seems to have been going on for months. The suspense and excitement of the 6th of June are now, she says, quote, lost in the mists of history. Army cameramen, officers, journalists, pilots have all crossed the Channel. Indeed, she points out, quote, it's easier to get a place on a landing craft than on a London bus. But the presentation and contents of Over and Back give no clue that Galhorn herself has set foot on the invasion beaches. In fact, the suggestion is that all her information about France is hearsay. All she's done, it would seem, is conduct interviews on the English side of the channel and watch the ships set off across it. Um, so this is the line that's allowed to stand as a blanket statement of her positioning throughout the invasion. The landing ramps at the port were the place to be if you couldn't be on the other side where it was already happening. But this remark actually refers to D-Day plus one, that is before Galhorn actually made the Channel Crossing. So the edition of Collier's magazine for the 22nd of July 1944 <coughs> gives a clear picture. A famed war correspondent, not just present on Fox Green Beach on D-Day, but an active, a proactive member of the invading force advising, strategising, delivering information, fighting. And a less famous journalist, not actually on the beaches in person, reporting on ancillary matters, rescuing and treating the wounded, the cross-channel voyage, now a commuter trip. So guess what actually happened? <laughs> well, the other evidence, there is other evidence to suggest that Hemingway did not land on the beach um, on D-Day. Um, since he was, by this time, a national treasure, he was not allowed to land. Um, rather than set foot on the beach, he watched the invasion from a transport ship, the Dorothea L. Dix, spending only moments, according to uh, their joint biographer, Bernice Kurt, in a landing craft which did not actually put him ashore. Kurt uh, interviewed GIs who'd landed on D-Day, and though crew members remembered uh, Hemingway in the landing craft... No one remembered seeing him uh, get out of it. Now, in making this point, 
Um, I certainly don't mean to diminish Hemingway's actions uh, that day. It was still incredibly brave to make the crossing and get into the landing craft, more than I would do. Um, And the outcome is that we have an extraordinarily vivid description of those moments. Now, for Gellhorn, we have no further evidence either way. We only have her own word that she landed on the beach on D-Day plus two, wading ashore to help stretch the wounded back to the landing craft. But it's also worth saying that we have no contrary evidence, as is the case with Hemingway. And again, unlike Hemingway, Gellhorn is consistent in her accounts over 50 years. There's no burgeoning embellishment. My own view is that there's good reason to think she did land and no reason to think she didn't, but everybody will make their own minds up. It may help to know that Hemingway was, quote, so infuriated by the information that Gellhorn had landed on the invasion beaches that in Bernice Kurt's words, quote, he convinced himself it never happened, explaining that Martha could not have made the landing because she did not have the proper credentials. Certain irony there. Uh, This might explain Hemingway's reply to his brother Lester's question, How did Marty make out? She did everything possible to make the landing, Ernest said, giving her full credit. Went over on a hospital ship, got good human interest stuff. They refused to let her ashore because she didn't have accreditation to this area. A damn shame. She got good stuff, though, and then came back here. And what makes this striking is that it is all actually strictly true. Um, Galhorn really did go over on a hospital ship. She did indeed get good human interest stuff. Uh, The military authorities did refuse to let her ashore, but it's at this point that the account becomes opaque um, because Hemingway omits to tell the whole story. Um, Despite the official refusal, he neglects to inform his brother, Galhorn went ashore anyway. Galhorn's biographer, Jacqueline Orsa, notes simply, he never forgave her. So why did it matter to them so much? Both could legitimately uh, claim to have come very close to the invasion beaches. Why was it so important whether uh, either or both of them actually set foot on shore? Um, And why should it matter to us now? Well, landing on D-Day was the ultimate journalistic coup. Uh, It was the prized inside view on the biggest story there was. Um, And being there is extraordinarily important in war correspondence. It's as though the right to write about war um, has to be earned through first-hand personal experience. And setting foot on the D-Day beaches would be the stamp of that. Um, But as far as I'm concerned, um, the most important thing is not really whether uh, Hemingway and or Galhorn um, actually set foot on the beach, um, but what their dispatches tell us about war and about war writing. Um, So there's a lot to learn here about how men and women correspondents were valued during the the Second World War, about the subtle effects of presentation, um, and about what the premium placed on the eyewitness accounts can lead to. Um, So the lesson I take from this is that when war reporters, as they still do, give the impression that they're at the heart of the war zone, um, we should treat their claims with extreme caution. Thanks very much. Thank you.